Dungeons and Dragons used to be divided into Dungeons and Dragons and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And the version of D&D that was introduced in 1983 became known as BECMI because it was divided into different tiers of play by box sets. Basic, Expert, Companion, Masters, and Immortal. In Immortal, the highest level you can reach is level 36 before becoming a god, which honestly is a missed opportunity because they should have made a level 42. The secret to life, the universe, and everything. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends who've been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is our favorite pillow. And right now, it's on the cool side. Hey folks, Ange here. I've been playing D&D and other RPGs since 1986, and I've been GMing since the mid-2000s. I started writing for Gnome Stew in 2014. Around 2017, they let me start running the blog's podcast, The Gnome Cast, and in 2021, they made me head gnome in charge of the whole thing. I have no idea why. Hello, and this is Jared. I am the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be jumping into our Dungeon Masters workshop, where we look at tiers of play and what that means for you and your players. After that, we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So for my campaign journal, I got to run both of my games since last episode. Because of the Thanksgiving break, we were able to schedule a session for the kids game. Now, I say kids, but most of them are high school seniors, with one of them being first year in college. I suppose I should also mention that there was drama in that group. <laughs> this was a very weird experience for me, because it's the first time there's been drama in a D&D group that I'm part of that I wasn't involved in. <laughs> These kids have been friends since grade school, but they unfortunately had a falling out with one of the members. I think it had been building for a long time, uh, and there was just something that happened that was a catalyst that kind of brought it all to the front. They were all very sad all the way around, but they asked one of the players to leave the group. Like I said, it was a little odd for me to be a part of a group that had drama that I was completely disconnected from. Uh, for the most part, it was mostly... They're just kind of reassuring them that, yeah, this is probably the right choice. You know, maybe in the future you guys can make up with her, but this is probably the best considering everything that they told me. Because we were down a player, we invited my other two nieces, who were also home from college, to join in the game. I've been running them through Dragon of Icefire Peak and mostly letting them choose which mission they want to do next. And honestly, the story has been kind of secondary they're mostly just there to go hit things and stab <laughs> them and bonk them on the head but because it had been three months since we last played and we were having a change in cast so to speak i specifically chose one of the adventures to prep for them rather than trying to prep for whatever they might decide to do next the whole thing ended up being a really good time although they only got about halfway through that adventure you know they're good kids and they're incredibly creative and imaginative but they are not experienced gamers and end up being easily distracted. <laughs> they did get to talk to an awakened giant crab, they promised to help a cursed banshee, and they fought a whole bunch of harpies. There is still the rest of the lighthouse to get to. With these kids, they're a bit hesitant with some of the abilities they had, but I did finally get the bard to hand out some bardic inspiration, and the guest sorcerer got to drop a well-placed fireball on six of the ten harpies. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah yeah i was like no no honey this is exactly she's like are you sure i should be doing this and i'm like honey this is exactly the circumstances that you want to use your fireball in you're not going to hurt any of your friends they are nicely grouped you will hit all six in one go this is what a fireball is made for with my uh depths of zendrick campaign i was a little nervous because this was my first time dealing with a hex crawl exploration game i know we started it last time but I kind of planned things a little more in that first session for them to have two specific encounters that I could kind of drop into whichever hex they were in at the time. But getting into the meat of it, I had specifically planned things that were in specific hexes. They have certain goals, but considering the Traveler's Curse in Zendrick, finding those things is not necessarily a guarantee. Luckily, the players decided to investigate the hex they were in and explore the stomping grounds of the storm boar they had fought last session, partially to make sure there wasn't a whole herd of them out there. 
That would be an unpleasant surprise. <laughs> that would be an unpleasant surprise. But they were like, we just we just want to make sure there's there's no more of those. And I'm like, yeah, you guys, I found his kind of stomping grounds, literally, and realized he was just kind of a solo guy out there. And while they were doing that, I was able to, you know, like have them roll some perception checks. And they found essentially like some barely perceptible wagon tracks that helped point them towards the mine they wanted to go to. Now, once they were at the mines, they discovered one of the brothers, Dag Stonefist, on top of a gated, barricaded wall in front of the mine entrance, with several other miners tiredly fighting off something the players couldn't see between the wall and the mine. The players quickly introduced themselves, climbed up onto the wall, saw that the miners were being attacked by vine golems, and not even hesitating, they jumped right into the fight. The vine golems were meant to be a medium fight. They hit pretty hard and had a pull that was kind of dangerous for the squishier characters, like Rena the Sorcerer, who discovered that ability. And they also had a little bit of damage resistance to non-magic weapons, which I always forget, <laughs> I always forget damage resistance. Luckily, two out of the three melee party members had magic anyway, and the one who doesn't is basically a sword mage, so he's kind of magic anyway. <laughs> Once that fight was over, there was a quick conversation with Dag to set up what had been happening. His brother thought they had found a cache of kyber shards, but instead they seemed to break through to someplace deeper where all these mushroom things started pouring out. Brundok and some of the other miners got trapped inside, but Dag knew they were still alive due to kind of a Morse code system he and his brother had worked out where they would tap on the, the rails for the minecarts to let each other know what was going on. So he knew they were still alive, but they couldn't get in there to help them because the mines were overrun by these mushroom creatures that wouldn't come out into the light, which is why the vine golems were sent out. I did have one of the players note that the vine golems were made of a more subterranean plant than traditional jungle plants. There were three entrances into the mines, and the players ended up choosing the northernmost entrance because that was the one Dag guessed would be the straightest shot to where the mushrooms came through. Almost immediately, the PCs were set upon by Mikan and adults, and Rena got to use her fireball for the first time. <laughs> Seems like fireball was the theme of both of the games I ran. It was also a theme of one of your player characters, too, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a now problem. <laughs> this fight ended up being pretty fun, uh, as the players were very smart about how they approached it, and they just pummeled their way through the Mike and it adults as they made their way through the corridor. I had actually populated the way Shard works. I had made the encounter with Mike and it adults spread throughout the entire tunnel system so that they would run into some no matter which way mm -hmm. they went. But they were wading through them so quickly that I'm just <laughs> like, you know, what? I'm just going to pull some from down here and pull them up into the fight. So, you know, in, in, you know, honestly, it was pretty satisfying for the players because they got to drop a fireball on them. They they kept getting to use some of their big booming spells to just like wipe them out, I think. Oh, moonbeam. They dropped a moonbeam down. So I knew there was something the Mykonids kept wandering into. You know, it, it was just a fun like wave through the minions type of fight, even if they weren't minions. I really do think that is something they need to bring back, mm -hmm. the concept of minions, because it is fun to just wade through a bunch of them they got to the central chamber for the big boss fight uh this 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 whole thing was based on a map made by zepiku c-z-e-p-e-k-u they do maps there you've probably seen them before they're really cool i believe it is a couple that does maps together and this was just called mushroom minds <laughs> and i saw it and i'm like this is in zendrick <laughs> this will be there I placed in that central chamber Amigo, three strobing fungus, and a bunch more Mykonid adults. <laughs> and it was a tough fight. It was meant to be a tough fight. But the interesting thing was is that the Amigo was not the most dangerous thing there. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was dangerous, but they very quickly saw this thing that looked like it was half mushroom, half insect, and were like, kill it with fire. That's kind of the response you get with Amigo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like they immediately poured on a lot of damage to that and they kind of ignored the strobing funguses because they looked like happy fat cute little dudes <laughs> with weird mushroom hats on it's the mario like, movie tj was like yeah tj's like i like this guy i like his hat and i'm like you're not gonna like him once he starts doing his thing 
So they wiped out the, the Mego pretty quickly. Only two of the characters got caught in its death explosion. The strobing fungus they quickly realized was dangerous. The Mykonid adults were, again, no problem. But they were able to figure out what was happening with the strobing fungus is quick enough that the two that I had placed too far away couldn't get to them because strobing fungus only have 10 feet of movement. <laughs> which meant on a double move, they're only moving 20 feet. So like <laughs> one of them eventually got to the party and they just killed it. But the one that was furthest away, once they realized how slow they were, Rena kept hitting it with Ray of Frost, <laughs> which reduces its movement by 10 feet, which means it was just like moving its, its legs to try and move. That's even better than the terrified Mimic trying to run away. <laughs> yes. Like, like, eventually, once that was the last one there, Cargill went over and basically used his telekinesis to yeet it back into the pit in a very this is Sparta <laughs> moment. And I'm like, okay, that's a fight over. But it had also gotten really, really late because everyone was having a lot of fun. So nobody wanted to stop <laughs> early. But, like, definitely our fight ended at, like, 1245 when usually I try and wrap up by midnight. So we called it there and we'll pick up with them talking to the miners, finding out. Actually, they did talk to the miners a little bit. Manic, the druid, was shapeshifted into a horse because that was the thing that had the most hit points on his list. And he also has a tele telepathy from a new feat. So he kind of poked his head into where the miners were hiding and said, have no fear. The fight is almost done. We will free you momentarily. <laughs> So, like, the miners got to see this horse and then hear a voice in their head. <laughs> like, okay, okay, I, I love gaming with these guys, so. So, I have a question for you, knowing how much you like uh, Eberron. Um, are you planning on getting the new book that Keith Baker Studio has released on DMs Guild? I want it. I'm probably going to have to wait until after the first of the year, though, because... You know, this whole holiday thing and money is tight. And I was just I, yeah. I was kind of curious because that's one of those things. I know how much work you put into putting things into Shard. And I know those are all options that you would have to put in there. You know, if you're using things mechanically from that book, too. Honestly, the, the, the plugging stuff into Shard isn't too bad. Like, I know how it works now. I can easily get a monster set up in shard in like 15 minutes mm. or less you know it's more just a matter of getting the stats pulled up on one screen get the shard interface and then usually the longest part is me picking which image i want to use and setting it up with the correct color token ring because i am that person <laughs> when it comes to vtt's like all the bad guys have this color token all the good guys have this color token npcs have this color but it's not too hard Speaking of color coding, I know I'm going off here, but I don't have much of a campaign journal this time around. So <laughs> that was one of the things that did throw me off with that uh, the monster kit that Watsy put out because they have four different colors in it. And it bugged me because in my mind, you should have an adversary color, an ally color and a neutral color. Those are the colors that you need for those discs. You shouldn't have four. Four, I don't know what to do with the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's exactly what I did in Shard. And because I have a paid account on Shard, I have access to more of the colors, you know, so I very specifically have bad guys are this color, <laughs> PCs are this color, you know, like, so yeah, that would drive me nuts too. So tell us about your, your non-campaign journal. So I have had like a respiratory thing going on since last Thursday. And for anyone that, you know, knows my schedule, Thursday is our gaming night. So unfortunately that meant I did not run the game for all of these people, these fine people that depend on me to be their DM. I failed them. <laughs> hey, we've, we've, we've caused it to be canceled before, too, because we've been sick. So basically, I did a few DM-ish things in the meantime. I made up a Session Zero checklist for Shadow of the Dragon Queen, the Dragonlance adventure, which I am not currently running, and I don't directly have any plans for it. But I also had to write out how I would do a session zero for it, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> just in case. So that's ready to go sometime. And then the other thing, I started planning for our next playtest. Um, we're going to do a six level playtest for 1D&D. &D. Next time, since the latest packet is released, 
we'll be able to, you know, look at the cleric and the Ardling and the Goliath and the Dragonborn, which were all in that packet. So we've already got quite a few people interested in doing that playtest. So we'll be doing that. And I'm sure eventually you'll be hearing about that either on my blog or here or both, because that's what I do. I talk. We'll definitely talk about it here. The other thing that is funny, I didn't get to run anything, but my daughter and my daughter-in-law have their friends over on Monday nights for a girl's night. And I get a phone call on Monday night and my daughter says, hey, do you want to run D&D for us sometime? (laughs) I was like, sure. (laughs) I guess I could make that happen. Yeah. So apparently I'm going to be running D&D for girls night at some point in time. So (laughs) that ought to be interesting. That's awesome. (laughs) Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. So today we're going to look at tiers of play in D&D, what's expected in each tier of play, and how D&D changes as you gain levels. So definition time. What are the tiers of play? So I would say your tiers of play are the expected scope of the player character's adventures and the assumed impact of their actions. I think in practice, it ends up being the way play and story changes as the character advances in level. I think it's safe to say it's been a part of D&D for a very long time, but I think it's only really been quantified in later editions. Like, I didn't have a chance to go back and see if they talked about this in 3.0 or 4th edition, but, like, 5th edition definitely has a section in the Dungeon Master's Guide which talks about the tiers of play. Um, And they break it down as local heroes are 0 to 4th level, heroes of the realm are 5th to 10th level, masters of the realm are 11th to 15th, and masters of the world are 16th through 20th. Previous editions also work in epic levels after 20th, but 5e has avoided that for the most part. Yeah, and I was going to say, because you asked me about that, um, I did do some poking around to try and refresh myself as to when things got a little bit more quantified. And I would say that beyond, if you're not looking at the box set versions of D&D, which kind of established the tiers of play with the different box sets. So you had your basic expert, companion, masters, immortal. And those were, in and of themselves, kind of their own, you know, tiers of play. But I think as far as AD&D and what turned back into D&D, 3rd edition didn't originally quantify them, but Dungeon Magazine started quantifying them as low level is 1st through 5th, mid-level is 6th through 12th, and then high level is 13th through 20th, and then 21st on being epic. And that was something that they started doing just in the magazine so that they what they had planned on doing is um, there was always one of each of the first three tiers. So there was always a low, a mid and a high level in every issue of Dungeon. So they kind of defined those so that they always had those um, set up there. That makes sense. And then, of course, fourth had heroic, paragon and epic for their tiers. So. That's right. I had forgotten that they called those that <laughs> level. I do remember we tried to do very early on in fourth edition. We attempted to do a one shot of what was the mid tier Paragon. Yeah. Yeah. Paragon level of 11th level characters. And that was a huge mistake because there was a lot for people to go through on those <laughs> yes. characters. And we only got part way through the adventure because there was so much to the characters. <laughs> so Jared, what are your experiences with the lowest tier local heroes, zero to fourth level? All right. So I personally, I like starting campaigns out at first level, but if I'm not going to start people at first level, I kind of like them to still start in that tier one area. D&D 5e makes it pretty easy to facilitate because you know, even if you're not starting at first, third is actually a pretty good jumping on point. You still get a little bit of that first tier sort of feel for characters, but everybody has their subclass. They're a little bit more durable. It's not quite like jumping in at first level where, you know, an orc with a good uh, crit roll is going to take you straight out. I think what's funny is when I was younger, I always wanted to picture first level characters as these are people that just finished training to learn their skills. This is somebody that just finished some sort of formal training to be a fighter or a wizard. I think even earlier editions kind of pushed that narrative a bit more, especially when, you know, they did things like you're starting off as like, you know, as a thief, you're 14 plus 1d4 years old or, you know, that sort of thing. And now I view this a lot more as this is where you start to have agency in your own story. Like, you might have been a town guard until you were in your 30s. You may have done some things, but this is when you start actually saying, no, 
I'm going to be an adventurer. I'm going to actually be a little bit more in charge of what I'm doing. And that probably is because I'm older now and not <laughs> looking at this going, I'm 16. I'm going to be an adventurer. Well, I think there's also a degree, like it's a little limiting to say that like your first level character must always be somebody young who is just starting. Yes, definitely. You know, like there's like no room for that older, wiser wizard who may not be super powerful yet. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the the town guard who's finally like leaving it all behind for whatever reason to go off and save somebody. Oh, yeah. I do like the starting out paradigms that are like not necessarily easy monsters, but things like bandits and wild animals and roaming monsters where the PCs are just becoming impressive enough that locals start to notice them and they move beyond just kind of doing the job board thing where it says, hey, there's something in the mine. We'll pay you some money if you get rid of it. And I think it's also fun to have some local legends for the PCs to explore at that stage, like, you know, the old haunted mansion. Nobody's ever stayed a night in this thing, except, you know, in D&D, if you bring your swords, (laughs) you might be able to stab whatever it is that haunts the mansion. (laughs) What about you, Ange? So I think the local heroes level works best for people just getting to know the game, whether they're veteran players new to the system or new players new to RPGs. Um... When we first tried out 5e with a one shot using the opening of the Minds of Fandelver campaign, we were definitely first level characters. With our first full campaign, which was the City of Cowles campaign that my character Dove is in, I believe we started at second level. I actually don't remember why we started at second level, because it seems to me it would have been either starting at first and then, or starting at third. Second seems a little odd, but (laughs) who knows? This is, you know, this was back in 2015, I think. Yeah. (laughs) My oldest copy of her is second level, at least. When I ran the Dragon Heist campaign, I started them at first level, though admittedly I wasn't originally intending to run Dragon Heist. It just happened that that came out right as we were setting up a campaign set in Waterdeep. (laughs) So it was like, why not? The teen game also started with them being first level characters because they were all newbies. And I know I wanted to like get them ramped up slowly. Oh, yeah. I find that with subsequent campaigns that happen after that first experience, most folks want to start at third level because the classes have their subclass by then. You start getting into some of the more fun mechanics. And once you've played through first and second level, you've been there. You've done that. It's not that it can't be fun. It's just that when you have a lot of gaming in your life, sometimes it it like, you know, get to the monkey, Mm -hmm. jump right to the cool stuff. Yeah. So what about killing rats? (laughs) Okay. So we have to talk about killing rats because this has become such a trope of like the thing that you do at first level (laughs) for your first job. I could be wrong. I think killing rats is a trope that came to us via our friends in uh, computer RPGs, but I see it referenced a lot even in tabletop RPGs. And it is interesting because it kind of reminds me of how I like low level play to be framed. One of the things that I think is funny is that again, even though we're talking about tabletop, It makes me think of MMOs because I remember when I first started playing EverQuest 2, I was so upset because one of the first missions you have is to kill rats. They don't make them look like mean, nasty rats. They're not dire rats. They're rats. However, (laughs) if you fight too many of them, they will kill you. (laughs) It does not necessarily make you start off feeling like you're a heroic character. (laughs) And that was one of the things I kind of like because at least... One of the things that I did like about World of Warcraft over EverQuest was that they at least had the decency to make things look a little meaner. Like, if you're going to go fight a rat in World of Warcraft, it probably has green glowing eyes, so at least you can trick yourself into thinking that a normal rat couldn't kill you. (laughs) I very much remember the first thing you're asked to do in Icewind Dale is head down into the tavern's basement and kill some rats. (laughs) I don't think I ever actually did this in a face-to-face tabletop game. That Icewind Dale experience was the first time that (laughs) happened. But you're definitely right. It has become kind of the trope of what first-level characters do. Go kill some rats so you can get some experience. There was a great um, subversion of that trope in uh, one of the Bard's Tale games where you get hired to kill rats in a basement and your, your character is like complaining about it this whole time and how indignant it is. 
and you run into this like bear-sized rat that breathes fire. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your experiences with the next tier, the Heroes of the Realm, 5th through 10th level? See, I think Heroes of the Realm is interesting because depending on what kind of campaign you're running, that scale looks different. Um, You mentioned Waterdeep before, and... That is one of those things like when you are local heroes, that's not like local like in Waterdeep, that's local like in a neighborhood. Uh-huh. Like if you're famous enough that everyone in Waterdeep knows you, you're not you're not a local hero. <laughs> you're probably not even a hero of the realm. You're probably the next tier up. Yeah. And honestly, you know, if you're looking at something more like Cormor, though, if you're in this kingdom where you're, you know, known as a hero of the realm, you've probably been traveling from city to city and doing various things that have helped the kingdom and save people. So I think there is a, I think there's definitely a difference from that first tier, but it's still going to feel a little bit different depending on how you're running that game. This is the level where I like to start having PCs get contacted by multiple local power groups to see who they gravitate towards. They're known. If they have a rival adventuring company in tier one, it's probably people from the same town or people they grew up with. But if you have a rival adventuring company when you are fifth to 10th level, this is when these are other people that are professionals and you're cutting in on their livelihood. That it's less like this personal, you know, hometown thing and more like these are other people we're competing with jobs for. <laughs> in our Marodi Empire uh, campaign that we're currently in, we did start off at third level, but I did kind of blend. Mostly because I whined that I wanted to start at third level. It made sense, though, because you're right. The subclasses do help you define who you are, especially when we had two people that wanted to be psionic characters. And you really don't get that in fifth edition until you take a subclass that has some sort of psionics attached to it. But I did kind of like merge that third level into this five to tenth level where you're people that had made a little bit of a name for yourself and you get recruited to work for Someone who in this case is actually someone very important, which was Yurazaza, who is the dragon that commands this region. And a lot of the scope of what they've been doing is trying to secure the realm from people that undermine Yurazaza's rule. Mm -hmm. For example, if somebody else is running a secret prison that's uh, undermining the economy, they go in and find out what's happening and make sure that Yurazaza can claim that place again. We didn't burn it to the ground. You didn't burn it to the ground. That was good. If there's local priests trying to subvert her own ability to hunt down these cultists of Nethus by basically turning everything into uh, all dragon god all the time theocracy, they get to undermine that. So that's a lot of what I'm really kind of uh, jumping onto with this current campaign. What about you, Ange? So Heroes of the Realm is where the bulk of my experience is. I think Dove is currently 11th level, so she's just moving out of that tier. While Selena is ninth level, Kazina is sixth, and in other campaigns that are currently on hiatus, Genshana was eighth or ninth level, and Sapphire made it to seventh level. This is where the game starts getting meatier and the stakes start getting higher. If you started play at first or even third level, by the time you get to fifth level and into this tier, the players generally have a better idea who their characters are, what their goals and needs are. Generally speaking, at least, this, of course, all depends on the type of game the GM is running. In my Depths of Zendrick campaign, we've just reached this tier as they all leveled up to fifth. And pretty much it's like this is when their exploration phase is happening. To me, this is where campaigns start getting really interesting. In my previous Eberron campaign, we started at fifth level with some flashbacks to first. It allows the world to stay dangerous, but you can start feeding in some of those epic encounters and storylines that really start to make the characters feel like they're a big deal. So what about Masters of the Realm covering 11th to 16th level? What's interesting to me is this is the terminology that they're using in 5th edition, and it feels like it's kind of a holdover from (laughs) other editions of D&D. Because Master of the Realms feels like your heroes that are going to be in a position of power, making decisions for a region, and that's not really supported in 5th edition. There is definitely a change between that previous tier and this tier. It's just that title kind of harkens back to the days of, I'm going to build my fortress and people will start showing up, and that's not really what you do these days in in 5e. No, no. I mean... I know there's some some third party supplements and stuff out there where you can start having strongholds and stuff like that. But I don't think I've ever played in anything that's really dealt with that too much. 
Yeah, and honestly, what I think this um, tier actually represents a little more of is you are doing things that potentially help more than one region at a time. Mm. I ran Storm King's Thunder, and that gets up into this level, and that's obviously that's something that's, you know, the entire North is potentially threatened by this upheaval in giant society. So by interacting with the people that are literally the rulers of these giant societies, you're making the entire North safer. I think it's kind of, it's kind of when your characters start truly getting noticed by the people in power mm-hmm. in the areas that you are dealing with. And, and I'd say your your reputation is more portable too. So like even if you were famous, say in Silvery Moon, if you show up in Luskin and somebody finds out your name, they're like, Oh, we've heard of them. They're you know, their story has actually traveled now. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, uh, looking back to when I was running in uh third edition, one of the things at this level this is when I had the Shadowvar come in from the Plane of Shadow to attack the Heartlands. And I feel like that uh, idea that you're starting to touch on planar issues, too, is another thing that hits in this level. Not that you won't see, like, summon things here and there before this, but this is when you actually have things from other planes that your PCs will start interacting with and starting uh, start thwarting because they are, you know, the main villains and things like that. You say that, and... Uh... <laughs> The City of Cowles campaign, Dove, it, it's on hiatus, but it went on hiatus with the infernal or demonic plane basically merging itself with the prime plane <laughs> and all of us escaping to a celestial realm where we're about to ask some celestials for help. <laughs> so, yeah, 11th level is when, oh, yeah, the planar stuff is starting to become really important right now. I run more than I play, but even like, you know, the the campaign I played in the longest was a Princess of the Apocalypse game and my cleric got up to 13th level. And honestly, that ends with you running into some planar issues that are coming in from the elemental plane. So that really kind of wraps up in that tier as well. Yeah. So what are your experiences other than what you've already mentioned? To be fair, my experience with this level is limited. As I mentioned, Dove is just hit 11th level and is into this tier now, but previous characters other than some one-shot characters are probably limited to Z from my fourth edition campaign. I want to say she made it to 14th or 15th level before we reached the conclusion of the campaign. And Zalus, um, who is a dragonborn, who I will talk about in the next tier play, made it through this whole thing. I think this is a this is a stage um where how do i want to phrase this in all of the campaigns i've played that made it to this tier and beyond the gms started doing more milestone xp is not the right term i want to use but they basically started doing things to kind of expedite getting through the levels to get to the cool stuff and and there's nothing wrong with playing traditionally tracking xp and only leveling up when you've accumulated enough and all of that um, but that makes that campaign a very slow burn. Mm-hmm. And all of my experiences with this tier of play um, are like we very specifically moved into it and moved through it. Um, I know with my previous Eberron campaign, we hit this tier before it got put on hiatus indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I was starting to struggle to make things challenging for the group. I think this is where you end up with the PCs being way more powerful than the average civilians running around, and it can make things dangerous and challenging without completely disconnecting them from the world is very tricky to handle. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, my previous Eberron campaign was run using Pathfinder, which kind of has a different scope, especially at this level. But I do think there are core philosophies that apply to all D&D-based games Yeah, when you start hitting this level. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think um, part of what you're saying about the, the milestone thing, I think there are times when people want to engage with these levels, but they also know that it is challenging to do so. So you start getting almost, um, it's almost like a tour of these levels, like, Mm-hmm. Okay, you're going to be 12th level. Let's see what 12th level is like. Okay, that was an adventure. Now let's see what 13th level is like instead yeah, of yeah. spending a lot more time tracking how things would go like you would maybe in those mid-levels. Yeah, now it, it, with the 4th the edition campaign, we were specifically playing 
like two or three to four times a year. Mm -hmm. It was kind of quarterly. It was when we could all get together and to actually give that campaign kind of scope to make it feel like an epic journey. We did have to do that type of thing where we pretty much kind of leveled up between each session. Mm -hmm. With the the campaign Zalus was in, which I will get into as we move into the Masters of the World tier, it was very much, we needed to wrap up the campaign. There were a variety of reasons we just needed to move on, but we didn't want to leave before the campaign was done. So speaking of Masters <laughs> of the World, what are your experiences with the epic tier that goes from 17th to 20th level? So I have not run a lot that falls into this category. And when I say I haven't run a lot that falls into this category, I mean across my entire career of gaming. <laughs> I think back in my earliest days of playing D&D, when we were playing multiple times a week in middle school, I felt like we had to get up to high level before we could justify retiring the campaign. So we kept playing up into you know those high levels, and we wrapped up the game with the PCs dealing with a plague that was going to destroy all magic including anyone that was a magical being. No, I wasn't reading X-Men Alpha Flight at the time. Why do you ask? <laughs> <laughs> in the end, I was kind of a mean DM because I had it in the back of my head that they were going to slow down the plague, but they were never going to stop it. So the next part of that campaign was trying to evacuate like thousands and thousands of magical beings from this world to a world that still had magic which I had just started reading my Forgotten Realms box set, so that's where I made everyone migrate to because it's got portals to all over. That's, you know, that's, that's part of its purpose. So that's kind of how we ended. That was our epic ending, was trying to open up these giant gates in different parts of the world so that all the elves could leave and all the dwarves could leave and, you know, wrapping things up that way. I haven't played them, but um, the AD&D 2nd Edition adventures that kind of touched on this level of play I have read through because they were really interesting to me. Second edition seemed to really want to give you some epic things to end a campaign on towards the end of second edition because third edition was coming out. So one of them was Die Vecna Die, which is basically Vecna entering <laughs> Sigil and trying to control all of reality. That's a pretty epic ending for a campaign, you know, making sure that a demigod doesn't take over the entire universe by inhabiting a city that no gods are ever supposed to go into. That one was kind of neat. There's also the Apocalypse Stone, which involved the uh, PCs trying to survive the apocalypse of their world and find another place to live after the world has ended. <laughs> like I said, these were both, you know what? Second edition's ending. Let's go out with a bang. <laughs> I have never, ever run a campaign or a one shot at this level. I've also only ever played one single character through <laughs> to this tier in my 30 plus years of gaming. You know, we've done a couple of one shots here or there where we played higher level characters to see what it was like. But Zalus from Pixelscape's Rain Shadow Tales campaign, which was basically a modified and customized version of Tyranny of Dragons, is the only one that has ever seen me get a character to 20th level. <laughs> And like I mentioned, to get us across the finish line, we leveled up quicker than we would have with more detailed XP tracking. Now, there was a lot the group did. There was a lot that happened still between like the 13th, 14th through mm. 20th level. There was a lot going on that the characters had to do and deal with and wrap up before we got to that final fight with TMI. But we did have to kind of push to get there very purposefully with that as the goal. And... It's like we wanted that final epic fight, and in the end, it was glorious. <laughs> I think it's important to know that all of the very high-level campaigns I have been part of require the GM to make adjustments to the way leveling and play work, mostly out of that need to balance the campaign with our daily lives. It can be very hard to take a character from level 1 and keep that going to get to level 20 without you know, some sacrifices being made along the way. Because that's a lot, that's a lot of time investment. You know, going into this, I was thinking I've never played a character that high level, but I have. And it was not only playing James and Tricasso's Planet of the Trasks, it was playing that module run by James and Tricasso at GameholeCon. <laughs> and it is really interesting because at that level of play, fighting the Trasks was not the problem. Not that they were easy to fight, but the, the problem was it was coming up with these 
wild ideas of things that our characters could do at 20th level that would help us complete this objective that was basically keeping the Trasks from escaping their world more than fight the Trasks and try and destroy them. We did some wild stuff in that game, and my character was even going to sacrifice himself, and then someone went out of their way to figure out a way to keep me from having to sacrifice myself. But what it is, is there's a lot of narrative permission going on in a game that high level. You just kind of know that because you are ridiculously powerful, something that you do probably lets you do this big thing. So you can make these grandiose plans that you wouldn't even think of doing at like even 15th level. So why do you think tiers of play have become such an integral part of D&D? Have they always been a part of D&D? I think we kind of answered that earlier, but I still want your answer to this question. <laughs> I think there's a few things um, that have divided the play experience, even in older editions, even when it wasn't quantified as much. There was the um, the terminology of when you hit ninth level being name level, because that's when you got that that title for your class. Okay, so for anybody that's too young to remember this, way back in the day, there were titles for each level that you got. Like if you were a, I forget what it was, but like if you were a third level fighter, you were a superhero. Like literally there were titles like tied into different levels. <laughs> and there was like one title that became like your final, you know, like warrior lord or whatever. I know someone's going to be very upset that I don't remember what these titles actually were. Anyway, you get that last title and you don't get any new titles after that. But once you hit that level is usually when you could build a stronghold and attract followers. And, you know, if you know, if you had the rights to a territory, you could start, you know, collecting taxes and things like that. Things that seemed really important to the people that designed D&D at the time, but didn't necessarily always sit quite as as well with some of the people actually playing. Um, I know none of my players ever wanted to build fortresses or attract followers or anything but i do think that 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 division between levels like everything that came before ninth was kind of you're just you know this is kind of your day job and then from ninth on it's like you're really a professional you're actually an important person now i also think to some extent there were de facto tiers based on the spells that started to become available at different levels like once you could teleport that changed the game because you weren't burning resources traveling from point A to point B. Once you got area effect spells, less powerful creatures swarming you wasn't really a problem anymore because back in AD&D days, even if it wasn't hard for you to kill a goblin, if you got swarmed by a bunch of them, they were probably still going to nickel and dime your hit points down very badly. Mm -hmm. But once you got fireball and you saw the goblins coming, there were no more goblins. You know, and then um, bringing people back from the dead is a huge milestone because then you're starting to take riskier actions because you're not worried about losing this character that you've taken months and months and months to get up to this level. You just need to take some time and spend a little bit of money and then you're back. And I also think the last thing that kind of hits me is one of those de facto, you know, tiers based on spells is once a wizard could cast ninth level spells, because that's when wish goes from the best treasure you could possibly find to something the wizard can hook us up with. <laughs> <laughs> it does change the feel of that it does a little bit yeah i was gonna say though as far as editions that formally did this even like um second edition really didn't first edition ad and d didn't second edition ad and d had the campaign options high level play and that's where they did start doing things like hey this is what a 10th level spell looked like but that was towards the end of second edition too did second edition level out the leveling I know in first edition, it was like every class leveled at a different pace. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every every class still leveled at different rates okay. in second edition. So it wasn't until third edition that they just kind of smoothed that all out. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I, I know there's people who love and miss that, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. That's another thing that made second edition weird for high level play, because the way certain classes were written, they just ended. They didn't go on eternally. Like if you were... I want to say the thief ended early too. Yeah, like monks just, you just topped out and then you quit scaling. So like if the rest of your adventuring party kept going to the 30th level, oh, I'm still 16th level, guys. <laughs> yeah. I think the very nature of leveling and the way characters gain power changes the game. The dangers faced by a first level character are drastically different than those faced by a 10th level character. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to acknowledge that in the narrative of the game 
for the whole thing to retain a level of verisimilitude. Because nominally speaking, these characters are still living in the same world. Yeah. You know, that same world where they were asked to go down into the basement to kill some rats <laughs> by the tavern keeper is now the same world where they're out fighting a horde of demons. You know, it's like, so you have to stretch a little bit and acknowledge that in the the narrative of the game to like keep it feeling whole. Yeah. So what are some of the pitfalls or problems with the tiers of play concept? Um, I think there's always going to be times when you want to participate in a certain kind of story and you want to do it now. And it feels less organic to push that off to when it's an appropriate level of play. You know, sometimes the narrative just kind of gets away with you and it doesn't make sense for the PCs at third level not to talk to the king because one thing led to another and you're just there and you're in this situation now. And sometimes, regardless of genre, you want to punch above your weight class. Everyone wants to be Spider-Man beating up Fire Lord at some point in time in their role-playing <laughs> careers. You want to be able to facilitate that without bending the rules too much. This is one of those things that I hear people who don't like D&D kind of grump about. Um, and even some folks I know who like D&D grump about the way things like teleport and resurrection change the way players and their characters interact with the dangers of the game's world. It can kind of be a bit unrealistic, but it's also incredibly fun to level up your character and get new stuff. I think one of the other issues with the way these tiers work in D&D is that it's not always aligned with the media that inspires our games. Sure, the danger the heroes in our stories take on get bigger and bigger and more dangerous, whether you're talking about the Lord of the Rings or the Avengers, but the characters themselves aren't always that drastically different from when they started. Mm -hmm. Aragorn was a badass in The Fellowship, and <laughs> he was maybe a little wiser and a little more aware of what was going on in the world in Return of the King and ready to accept his future, but he's not that drastically different of a character. Steve Rogers, Captain America. And yes, I know I'm mixing my metaphors with superheroes <laughs> and D&D here, but this is Jared and I. This is going to happen. It is going to happen. Steve Rogers, after he gets the super soldier serum in the first Avenger, what he gains is knowledge and understanding. His abilities never really change between that moment he gets the super serum and when he is fighting Thanos in Endgame. And this can sometimes be a little hard to reconcile because it makes D&D kind of be its own thing as far as our narrative storytelling goes. But conversely, what are some of the benefits that come with having tiers of play in D&D? I honestly think a lot of the longevity that D&D has with people is the idea that you're playing somewhat different games at different times. People may not always get up into tier three or four, but I think a lot of people stay interested when they start off happy to make 100 gold pieces fighting a manacore, and then over time they transition into finding magic items and throwing down with giants. The experience, it remains adventuresome, but your imagination starts to kind of grow with what you're allowed to do with those same characters. As I mentioned in the local heroes tier, it's a great place for new players to start. D&D set up in this regard offers a nice way to get players into the game and slowly teach them their character as they level up. It's a little hard to get something similar in, say, a supers game. You know, another thing I'll call out is that because there is such a broad range from the tiers and the length it can take getting from 1st to 20th level, one of the benefits can be figuring out where the campaign you want to run needs to be and just start there. Mm -hmm. Never really having played in the Masters of the Realm tier, start everyone at 11th level and go from there. You can do some things to establish backstory and history of the characters, but you can choose to have a different jumping in point to play with the different stuff in game if you don't want to take the time to go from zero to hero. I do think most people gravitate toward the Heroes of the Realm stage, but there's no reason not to experiment with the higher levels. Do any other TTRPGs experience tiers of play similar to D&D? Similar, but not identical. Back when I was playing the the Warhammer 40k games, Dark Heresy, Only War, Rogue Trader, and Death Watch all operate on different scales because obviously your little Inquisitor that got pulled in off the streets to help the Inqu Inquisitors find heretics is nowhere near as powerful as, you know, a space marine that has been genetically modified to wear power armor and to <laughs> plug things straight into their heads and things like that. But the power levels 
start to overlap, your Dark Heresy character may end up as powerful as the starting people in Rogue Trader, who are these people that have tons of money and resources. And your Rogue Trader characters may eventually become as powerful as the starting Death Watch characters because, you know, they're dealing with all these holy relics and they're learning how to use psychic powers and things like that. And even your Death Watch characters start off being able to kill ridiculous numbers of quote unquote normal things like orcs or Tau or whatever. And eventually those same Space Marines, if they live long enough and they get the right relics and all of this sort of stuff, then they might be like blowing up demon lords instead of, you know, the just the really big orc that could bite their head off. <laughs> it doesn't scale quite the same way that D&D does, but I do definitely think there are tiers of play in that paradigm. I also think that superhero games have these tiers of play, but it works a little bit different than D&D. You can have a character like Spider-Man that goes from being the street-level neighborhood guy to being better known, but you're not going to have Spider-Man go and become a cosmic champion like Captain Marvel, except for when he had the unipower, but that's a whole other thing. We're not <laughs> going to go into that. But <laughs> the point is, I don't think most people move more than like a tier ahead of where they started out. Spider-Man may start off as a neighborhood guy, but then he's going to be known as somebody that everybody in New York knows and probably everyone in the United States recognizes, but it's not going to be like, Tony Stark. You know, it's it's there's still a difference there between those. I do think that superhero games probably come the closest, but like you said, there is a different paradigm there. You don't do the zero to hero thing in a supers game. In Mutants and Mastermind, the GM is encouraged to start the characters at the power level that most suits the type of game they want to run. So for example, power level seven for street level, power level ten for your average beginning hero and power level 15 for your Justice League or Adventures. So it's like those tiers are there, but they're not tiers that the character traverses. Savage Worlds breaks things down into ranks, starting with the lowest being novice and ending up with legendary. Um, they base it on the number of advances the character earns throughout a campaign. And you can't start at novice and end up at legendary but I think the, the range between ranks is less pronounced than the tiers in D&D. Like you can have, you can legit, it, it's not going to be horrible to have a novice level character interacting with a veteran level character. You know, like you can do this. For the most part, I think the concept is present in any game that has a leveling system, even if a specific level isn't attached to the character, but the differences between low and high powered characters isn't as dramatic as it is in D&D. The power level gets broader and deeper, not taller. Like, so what are your techniques for handling the transition between tiers of play? Because I think this is something that GMs need to be aware of, that it can throw you off your game, so to speak, to move from one tier to another if you're not prepared for it. Yeah, I think, and sometimes it's harder with um, published adventures like Storm King's Thunder because you kind of feel like you're on a time crunch even if you really aren't because you probably should care about <laughs> whether you're getting things done. But like if I'm running things where it feels like you can take some time off, I usually like to take more downtime off between tiers than I do normally. Mm -hmm. So like if I normally between adventures assume that PCs are relaxing for two weeks or so, I might have six months go by in between tiers of play just so they have this feeling that, you know, narrate to me what you've been doing these last six months. And then, you know, you can see that the world is changing and you feel that gap a little bit more. And then when you come back, you can start throwing those bigger things and you know you've had a break. It's almost like the transition between seasons in TV series. Although it's funny in the City of Cowles game, we have gone from second to 11th level and I want to say the game has spanned five months. <laughs> like, it's really been like we, we stop and think about it like, oh, we've actually only known each other for a few months. <laughs> I think it's important to understand the scope of what you want to do with your campaign. If you're only focused on the lower level of play of local heroes or heroes of the realm, then make sure you keep that in mind as your campaign progresses and find a good ending before the campaign moves into a tier you're not prepared for. If you want to do a full breadth of campaign 
going through all of the levels. And you need to plan your campaign to build up from small problems to epic problems for the characters to deal with. I think this is one of the things you have to be mindful of and careful of is what what are you throwing at your players? When are you throwing it at your players? And are they ready for it? Because like you can start a campaign with those characters at first level and have these grandiose epic ideas for where everything is going to end up. But you can't introduce that to the players at first level. You got to slowly build up to it. And I think that's something it's important to keep in mind when you're GMing for that long haul. Oh, yeah. And I think especially if you're going to run a story based campaign now, if you and no shame on this, if you're playing D&D and you just like to explore dungeons, then this is probably not something you need to worry about as much. Yeah. But most campaigns that I go into, I think of a campaign arc villain, like who is the final boss that I want them to run into and what does that boss want to accomplish? And for me, it's not so much that they need to get to that boss, but it's almost that once they do get to that boss, I know I'm done running that campaign because that's where my head has been at and that's where all the background stuff has been playing into, you know, for all of that. I'm not saying we'll get to it, but I know exactly what the end game is for the Marodi campaign. A lot of the stuff that happens one way or the other touches on that end game, whether you see it or not. I will say one practical piece of advice for GMs in this area. Pay attention to the spells your players are going to be getting access to, because that can drastically change what is a challenging encounter to something that is a breeze. Like we mentioned earlier, getting access to resurrection, getting access to anything that brings somebody back from the dead is dramatically, you know, altering to a campaign. Teleport is dramatically altering to a campaign. You have to keep those things in mind when you're planning your campaign, because I think those are the things I struggled with when my original Ebron campaign got into that over 10th level tier and all of a sudden they had powers I wasn't quite prepared for. So last question, what is your favorite tier to play in? This is going to sound boring, but it's solidly tier two. I appreciate tier two. At that point in time, you've had tier one to establish who the players are, how they relate to each other. You have some stories to tell about the stuff you did together, and you are, at that point, really a team. And then you get to go do some team stuff that looks more impressive than that team stuff you did when you just cleared out the old haunted mine and found out that it was old man Jenkins wearing a bugbear suit. <laughs> um. <laughs> more for you meddling kids. It is that that feeling that you all have this level of notoriety together and not just separately. Since that's all happening at the same time, now you kind of go, OK, we have this notoriety. What are we going to do with it now? That's what I really like about tier two. I like tier three, but I haven't played in it as much. And that's why I said that tier two is just that solid hit for all of those things that, you know, I'm looking for in D&D. Yeah, it's definitely tier two for me as well. Part of that is because I get bored with the lower levels. You know, I, I know that's probably anathema to a lot of people out there, but once we get into the new edition, whatever we're going to call the next iteration of D&D, then I'll explore some first level characters again. But I just I don't have any desire to be there anymore. Like I've been there. I've done that. I want to get into the meaty stuff, which starts at third level. And then the really cool stuff starts happening once you're fifth level and above. And honestly, all of my favorite D&D characters land in this tier. So it tends to be the one I look most fondly on. It's also the one I find easiest to GM for. I'm not worried about TPKing the party with something a little too powerful. And I'm like, oh, there's a lot of cool stuff you can pull in to challenge them. That's my favorite. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So I wanted to point folks towards Seth Skorkowski's YouTube channel. I know I've recommended his stuff before on the Gnomecast, but I also wanted to recommend it here. He has a lot of great content on RPGs of all kinds, but specifically for D&D. He does these reviews of older modules that offer a lot of great advice on how to run them and things to change or update for them. It's great stuff. I've learned a lot listening to his videos, talking about how he would modify 
or change these old adventures, even if I don't ever run them. More recently, he did a fantastic video talking about the use of minis in games. For some reason, this is a hot topic among some players, either insisting that they always be used or they never be used. <laughs> Seth gives a wonderfully nuanced view of how and when and why to use them to enhance your game, and I think this is perfect for any D&D dungeon master debating on how to handle them at your table. So I have been excitedly waiting for the Willow series to debut on Disney+. Plus. And I was hoping I was going to like it. And now that I've seen the first two episodes, I, I really do. I love the movie because it was one of the few 80s fantasy movies that wasn't borrowing everything from Conan, where it was more about like wonder and actually seeing the, the neat magical parts of a fantasy setting than it was just the sword play. Mm -hmm. And what I appreciate so far is that the narrative is a pretty standard fantasy narrative. But where it subverts things are the characters that are on this journey. I don't like it when people try and subvert too much stuff at one time because it feels like people are intentionally trying to do something no one else has ever done. And I'm not a fan of novelty for novelty's sake. But these characters are all very likable. They all start off with a very obvious archetype. But something about that archetype is a little bit different than what you would expect from those archetypes. And that's what I've really been enjoying about these things. There's people that you think will be lovable rogues but have a certain character flaw but they end up not having that character flaw and they're actually as nice as they seem like they are there's some people that really should be good people and they aren't evil but they have character traits that make it harder to like some of the ways they've approached things and one of the things that i really like is that there is a relationship that you see early on whereas there there is some tension there and what i was worried about was that that Tension was going to be subtext forever, especially since this is Disney. And fairly early on, that subtext very obviously becomes text. And I really appreciate that, too. So it's playing with good characters having bad traits and characters that are better than you assume they would be based on the roles in this style of story. So I'm really interested to see where this goes. That's awesome. We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, you should also consider checking out Pandas Talking Games, queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Wednesday, answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing TTRPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.